Yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to INC Live and welcome to the UFC 262 preview show. My name is Carl Birmage and the man on your right hand side of the screen, it isn't John Marsh in MMA, but we did go to John and say, can you get me the best possible guest that you can to uh, cover you on short notice? And he's chosen Luke Alexander. Luke, a lot of people might not know who you are. They certainly will by the end of this hour. Yeah, thanks for having me, Carl. Yeah. John called me up, was like, can you make weight by uh, Sunday? And I was like, nope. And he's like, oh, you're good. You can you can show up anyway. So, yeah, I'm happy to be here. And, yeah, I'm actually going to be attending UFC 262. So this just worked out great. Yes, and that's one of the big reasons why I was very interested in having you as a guest because we're sort of in this new normal when it comes to MMA and mixed martial arts in terms of fans attending. This is going to be the second time UFC 261 was the first in 14 months that we're going to have crowds back as somebody who's attending the show is is it something you're excited about are you, are you nervous about it because there are still a lot of people out there that maybe are still unsure over whether this is still the right thing to be holding attended shows yeah i'd be lying if i said i wasn't a little bit nervous although uh, i'm going to be attending the fight with my girlfriend um, we're both vaccinated, so we're you know happy that we're vaccinated, and we've been vaccinated for about three weeks, so I think that that's going to work out great. Um, you know, I don't think there's any fallout from UFC Jacksonville, so that we know of at least yet. So hoping that uh, yeah, I think it's going to go well. So yeah, and I will say as well, even though I'm sort of somebody who sort of errs on the side of caution when it comes to how the UFC should be approaching coming out of lockdown. That being said, though, the Jacksonville show, a lot of people believe it's it's one of the best UFC pay-per-views of all time. And in my opinion, the crowd was a big reason why it, it was so good. Yeah, no, 100%, I agree. I think that the crowd really, you know, there's a lot of fighters, Molly McCann, a couple other different fighters who really speak about, you know, having the crowd. I think Gaethje's kind of the similar way that really amps them up. And I think, yeah, the crowd atmosphere, I mean, the crowd was electric the moment that uh, Usman knocked out Masvidal, and it just wouldn't have been. It would have been. It would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have been as exciting as what it would have been before. So I'm really excited to see how the crowd plays into some of the matchups that we have on the 262 card. I've been to the Toyota Center before to see a fight. I went to UFC 166, which had Cain uh, Velasquez taking on Junior Dos Santos. Um, it had in the, in that case. Um, it also had the uh, Gilbert Melendez Diego Sanchez fight, and I mean that's. I've been to a lot of different sports, professional sports live. The Diego Sanchez-Gilbert Melendez fight was the best crowd atmosphere that I've ever had in any sport. I mean, everybody was up losing their mind. So I'm really hoping for a moment like that on this UFC 262 card. And there's a potential to do it as well, because I wouldn't say that 262 has the star power in the same way that 261 has, but I think it carries its quality a lot better down the card. The, the comparison that... I personally make is comparing 238 to 239. Like 239 had like the big star power with John Jones defending the light heavyweight belt, but it dropped off after like the third or fourth fight. I would say the quality dropped off quite substantially. 238 was one of those cards where the bar wasn't as high, but it maintained its quality far better. And in my opinion, that's the sort of card of getting with 262. I think that's a very, very apt comparison. I think that this this card has a lot of divisional, has a lot of matchups that have a little bit more divisional impact. I think, you know, and I mean, you know, I think it's 
a little bit hindsight's twenty twenty. I think there were some people that weren't necessarily as high on, you know, Usman and Masvidal running it back. And then the finish that we got made people a lot more excited for it. You know, as you know, MMA fans have a lot of recency bias. So I think, like you said, this is a card that could age, age like fine wine. We certainly hope so. And we have got ourselves a fantastic main card, which we'll be getting into in a lot more detail. Before we get there, though, we're going to be talking about the prelim fights. Now, you can see those on your screen there. Uh, there's a couple of prelims which certainly take my fancy. And I think for most people, the one that's going to be the most intriguing is the is the prelim headliner, which is Jokere Souza taking on Andre Muniz. Um, Jokere, a, a staple of the middleweight division, former Strikeforce champion, in a lot of people's eyes, one of the best fighters to never fight for a UFC title. But we have been seeing the UFC getting rid of a lot of veteran names over the past few months. Alistair Overeem's obviously gone. They cut Tyron Woodley earlier this month. Is Jacobi maybe in danger of losing his UFC place if he was to lose this fight? I definitely think he's knocking on the door and put out to pasture. I was very surprised that he kept his spot on the roster after the Kevin Holland loss. Um, I really thought that that would be a loss that could send him packing. Um, but the UFC gave him, in my opinion, what is a really forgiving fight. Um, I think that, you know, I think he edges out Muniz's best attribute is his grappling. So I think he's going to edge that out. But the strangest thing about this fight to me is not where Jacare goes with a loss. It's where Jacare goes with a win. I mean, he beats, you know, someone who's unranked and he's kind of just floating in purgatory. You know, a guy who recently fought Jan Blackowitz, who's now the current light heavyweight champion. And, you know, he fell out of title contention so yeah this could be i'm not really sure where he is on his contract but um i think he could just be fighting out his contract at this point so you know i wish the best for him jacare is definitely one of my old favorites to be honest i completely blanked out jacare fighting blahovitz because it was on that sao paulo card which i think a lot of people agree is one of the worst cards of all time yeah i think a lot of people memory hold that i mean that fight itself was not that interesting of a fight i mean it was a pretty paint by numbers you know kickboxing match at distance so <laughs> like the only thing i remember from that card was paul craig rocking shogun that's the only thing i remember from that entire card i tried to put that out of my memory that was way too sad anytime shogun is murdered by someone yeah Ugh, what a what a card hopefully that will not be the card that 262 is like but yeah, I think that this is an interesting matchup. I think that, you know, I think Jacare still has pop. I think he still has a lot of pop in his punches. Um, I'm not super impressed with Muniz. I know the UFC loves him because he's a contender series guy. You know, he beat Arroyo, who's a pretty decent, serviceable striker. Um, he's submitted Bartosz Fabinski. I'm not real high on Fabinski. I think he's almost a glass cannon of grappling, if you will. He's a good Judoka, but, I mean, submission losses to Gerald Mearshart, submission losses to Muniz. I think he's pretty prone to giving up his back and going for more submission over position. And, um, yeah, I don't really see a path to victory in Muniz for this fight unless he just, you know, outpoints um, Jacare by being a little – having a little bit more output and then clinching Jacare up. And, you know, what about you? What are you, what are you leaning towards in this fight? It's going to be an interesting one for me. I think that – what you often find with a lot of these sort of like grappler versus grappler matchups, and we'll probably talk about that in a lot more detail when it comes to the main event, is a lot of the time it turns into a kickboxing match. And I agree with right. you. I think Jacare does have a lot of pop on his punches. I think it's something which he's got a lot better at later in his career. We all remember what he did to Chris Weidman. 
which was a fantastic fight as well, UFC 230. I think he's just got enough about him to get this done. But if he was to lose some knees, I think that's going to be it for him. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think Jacare, we, we know we spoke about it before. This is a great time for MMA. I mean, I've listened, I listen, I'm a listener. I listen to your podcast. I know how high you are on the state of MMA. Like you said, this is a 2009 era. I mean, we have a lot of organizations. I mean, I would love to see Jacare go over to PFL, you know, and have a chance to fight, you know, a million dollar bonus prize at the end or something. I think Jacare has some shelf life left. I, I think a lot of people are reading too much into the Holland loss is a loss for Jacare and is both a win for Kevin Holland. Certainly so. And I think that, I think Kevin Holland sort of shown that with some of his uh, poor performances in, over the past uh, few months. In terms of the other fights which are on the prelims, which could be of note, we have two um, seeded, right, uh, seeded fights. Uh, Matt Schnell versus Rogerio Bontovin. I know you're high on Schnell. Andrea Lee taking yeah. on Antonina Shevchenko, which... A lot of people thought Andrea Lee, when she came into the UFC, could be a potential Shevchenko opponent. She is fighting a Shevchenko, but it's not the one a lot of people thought she was going to fight. Yes. Yeah, I think this is a good fight. Um, you know, Shevchenko's had some setbacks. I mean, both of them have a loss to Roxanne Modafferi. And so, you know, that's an interesting loss to have on your record. I think, you know, Roxanne's pretty underrated. I mean, you know, she doesn't have the athleticism of what, you know, a lot of the other women in the division have. But, I mean, she does have a very confident top game. And her, her striking has gotten better. But, I mean, speaking strictly of both these women, um, I think Angela Lee is going to have a pretty good path to victory here. I think she's pretty effective scrambler. I don't think she's too outmatched on the feet. I mean, I don't think Shevchenko is that um, – I don't think she has that much pop in her punches or really anything or kicks that would really worry Lee. I mean, Lee's never really had much issues with her chin. Um, but yeah, I think that this is going to be an interesting matchup. I think Shevchenko has a, a pretty good top game, but I mean, beating um, it, her name evades me. Who did Shevchenko's last win come from? Lipsky. Lipsky. Yeah. I, I don't think Lipsky has much of a ground game, if any. So I think that, you know, this is going to be a fun. I think this has the potential to be a fun fight with some good scrambles and some good exchanges on the on the feet. Any other fights on the prelims that take your interest? Um, I think Mike Grundy's a pretty interesting guy. I know he trains out of Darren Till's camp. I mean, he's a phenomenal wrestler. You know, he ran into Masar Ivalev, who's a tough fight for just about anybody. You know, he. I'm interested to see how he does in this fight. I think that this is a pretty interesting matchup for him. Um, Lando Venata is. It's a fun guy. I mean, you know, he's gave Tony Ferguson a tough fight. He has those two fights with Bobby Green that are great fights. Um, I think this could be a, a pretty good win for Grundy to get him going. Um, other than that, on the early prelims, I don't think there's any that, you know, are too compelling. I think the Matt Schnell, as you mentioned, I'm a pretty big Matt Schnell fan. I think that he can, you know, notch a pretty good win in Rogerio Bontarin. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think moving on to the main card. What's your what's your uh, take on the first main card fight? Uh, and the first main card fight, which, of course, we were talking about this just before the show. We were sort of like going through the fight, making some sort of notes on things that we might uh, bring up. Um, I have to say the first fight on the prelims could very well be one of the best fights on the entire card because we're going to the featherweight division. It is Shane Burgos taking on Edson Barboza, the number nine versus the number 13 seed. Uh, Burgos enters this fight off a loss, which was up against, um, I forget his name now, Josh Emmett, which was an absolute barn burner of a fight. A lot of people had that same number two or number three in their fight of the year. 
Uh, Edson Barboza managed to get his first featherweight win. He beat Makwan Amiakani. And a lot of people are sort of framing this as a generational battle. You've got the wily, grizzled vet and Barboza looking for a second win in his career down at featherweight. And Shane Burgos, who is almost in this sort of last chance saloon when it comes to potentially being sort of a top five guy. Because he has two losses on his record, but that was Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett, two real hard-hitting and very good boxers. And a lot of people are thinking if Burgos was to lose this one against Barboza, maybe that's him done in terms of being like a future title challenger. Yeah, this is a super interesting matchup. And I think, you know, this is two camps that I really like. You know, you got Tiger Movie tie with um, Burgos versus, you know, I don't know. I think uh, Barbosa is still with Mark Henry. I think this is the second Mark Henry fighter on the card with uh, uh, Chukagian and um, Barbosa as well. Um, man, what a matchup. I think that, uh, you know, Burgos is just such a such a strong pressure striker. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, he's fought really some some heavy hitters. I mean, he has, you know, losses to both Emmett and Cater, who are two guys that can absolutely box. And then, you know, that fight with Kurt Hollibog, you know, he got rocked there. And so he is a guy who takes a lot of damage. But, I mean, he's a guy who presses forward. He is pretty heavy on his front leg as, you know, some of the Tiger movie tie fighters are. So I'm interested to see if Barboza will take advantage of that and use leg kicks. And I'm interested to see, you know, if Shane Burgos employs some cross counters off those leg kicks. And, you know, there's a pretty good uh, game plan set to beat Barboza now. I know we talked about that before. I mean, we've seen a lot of fighters just really pressure Barboza and punish him for his poor cage craft. Do you, so do you think that's something that Shane Burgos could take advantage of? I certainly hope so. And, because the thing with Edson Barbosa is Barbosa has been in the UFC now since 2010-2011. So the path to beating him has been tread by a lot of fighters. Even going as far back as when he first lost to Jimmy Varner. Varner was able to put the pressure on him, get him on the back foot. And Barbosa's tactics and his sort of awareness around him just completely fell apart. And that's how uh, Varner was able to get the win. And we've seen everyone from Paul Felder through the Khabib, through the Dan Ige, do exactly the same thing. So Burgos knows how to how to do how to win this fight, and I think he has the tools to do so because he is very he likes to get on the front foot. He likes to press his opponents back, use his footwork and his combinations. But you made a really good point there. He is very heavy on that front foot. We saw what Barbosa did to Dan Hooker, who fights in a very similar way. I think this is really good matchmaking by Sean Shelby and Nick Maynard because they put together two guys whose strengths play into the weakness of their opponent and vice versa. Yeah, 100%. Man, they must not like Edson Barbosa giving him two pressure strikers right out the bat gate at featherweight. But, I mean, he is an amazing fighter. I mean, God, Barbosa is a guy. I mean, he's just the Terry Edson knockout. I mean, and he's, he's had some losses in his career. I mean, I remember thinking that he was going to just destroy Cowboy and then him getting, you know, dropped with the jab. And, yeah, um, I think that – I think you tend to be right. I've gone back and forth on this fight as to who I'm picking, but I would like to see Barboza work those leg kicks. Um, Shane Burgess is a big featherweight, mm. so I don't know if Barboza have that much of a size advantage. I think Barboza has a little bit of a speed advantage, but I do think uh, Burgess could use his size to kind of bully Barboza. Yes, which might be a good thing in one respect, because I agree with you. I think that Barbosa, even a lightweight, Barbosa had an, a habit of being sort of thrown around a lot. 
and uh, opponents would use their power and use their pressure to sort of bully him into positions which he didn't like. And Burgos is more than capable of doing that based on his size. But at the same time, I also feel that because Burgos is so big for the division, it sort of makes him overconfident about how powerful his opponents can be. He sort of thinks nobody right. can dare hurt me because I'm because I'm so much bigger. And we've seen him get cracked by Keita, Emmett, Kurt Holobar. And it's a really fascinating match for this one. It's a great, it's a great way to open the card. I just think that the path to beating Barbosa has been tread on so many times. Shane Burgos is going to stick to that a, quite a, a broad game plan. So I'm picking Shane Burgos to win this one. I don't think he finishes Barbosa. I'm going to say decision. And it's so tough because, you know, I lean Barboza. I mean, Barboza really impressed me in the Danny Gay fight. I know he didn't get the win. I know it was a controversial decision. But, I mean, he really looked good. I mean, he I was pretty impressed with him dropping down to featherweight. I, di- I was not ready to be impressed at all. I really thought that this was a last-ditch effort to kind of save his career. But, I mean, kind of you've mentioned previously when we talked, kind of similarly to Aldo, he really took the cut well. He came down. He retained his speed. It looked like he retained his power. He definitely wobbled um, Ige. So I don't know. I'm just not sure about Burgess. I'm not sure when he's taken so much damage. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back, his, I mean, even his wins, even in his wins, he just eats shots. And it's a, re- it's a really good point you made. I think he thinks he's, that he's so much bigger than these guys in this division. And he kind of discounts, you know, their power. And I don't think Barboza is a guy who you can discount his power. I think he might not have as much power in his hands, but he's just, he's got sneaky, elusive power. And he was really able to, I mean, Ige pressured him as well and was able to run into some counters. So I'd not be surprised if Burgos runs into some counters. Just to be different, I think I might go Barboza. I'm not sure if Burgos has never been, I mean, he was put away by Cater, but I mean, that was a pretty interesting finishing sequence. But I'll go Barboza TKO round two. No, let's go three. Well, this is this is interesting right off the bat here because me and John Marsh, we nearly always agree on every single prediction. So already we're sort of disagreeing with one another. But that's actually a good thing, I think. Because it's going to get people yeah. talking. It's going to get people in the comments section saying, oh, I agree with him. I don't agree with him. And trust me, I have had a lot of negative comments <laughs> in regards to some of the predictions I've made on this show. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm I happy give- with the- I gave Jessica Andrade a chance of beating Shevchenko. So any sort of ball condition, ball prediction is welcome on this show. For sure, for sure. And I mean, I don't, you know, it's it's cage fighting. I mean, it, you know, you never know. So, yeah. So I guess moving on, we got an interesting fight in the women's flyweight division. We have Caitlin Chukagian versus Viviani Araujo. What do you think the reasoning is by behind putting this on the main card? It doesn't really fit with some of the other fights, I don't think. I think it's a fascinating one because I think with the women's divisions, especially women's flyweight and women's bantamweight, you've got two champions who are quite easily going through their title contenders, especially with what we've seen with Shevchenko, who could easily take off contender after contender every three or four months. I think the UFC needs to showcase any potential contender for the title because there is a good chance that they could be fighting them in the short term. And I think this is maybe one of those situations because Viviani is a fighter who it's fascinating with Viviani that she's she's sort of hailed as one of sort of like the brighter prospects of the featherweight division coming up through the rankings. 
But she's 34 years old and she's had 12 fights. So she's no spring chicken. And I think the UFC is sort of thinking, if she is able to get through Chukasian, who's always been that sort of around the sort of top two or top three since the division began, they could use that as leverage to say, this is the next girl who could potentially beat Shevchenko. Because I, I get the impression that, yes, Lauren Murphy and Juwan Caldwood, or they're going to be fighting a 263 potential title eliminator. I think for whatever reason, I don't think the UFC excited by the winner of that fight versus Shevchenko, whereas they would be with Viviani. I agree. I think Viviani has a Bra- the Brazilian market. You know, I think it's anytime you have a Brazilian, a chance for another Brazilian to be the champion, I think the UFC gets very excited about that. Um, yeah, I mean, not much to say about, I mean, Viviani's an interesting fighter. I think, you know, she does carry some power. She, you know, the knockout win to, against Toledo Bernardino, oh, I mean, and then her wins against um, Montella, Montana De La Rosa and um, Roxanne Modafferi, she showed some pop in her punches. She's really strong. Um, I just don't think she has enough technical ability to be able to hang in there with Chukagian. She also has gassed in most mm. of her fights. And I, this is a fight where, you know, Mark Henry's fundamentals that he's drilled into Caitlin Chukagian are really going to be able to shine through on Viviani Araujo. And I, I see Chukagian taking a 29-28 decision. I'm leaning towards 30-27. I think here's the thing with Caitlin Chukagian. Chukagian gets a lot of criticism from fans for her fighting style. And I, I agree it's not the most aesthetically pleasing. Someone made this comparison with Caitlin, which sort of stuck in my head ever since I heard it. What she essentially is, is Holly Holm without the athleticism. She uses a lot of lateral movement, she stays on the outside, and she just throws these jabs and these kicks to frustrate opponents and lead them into mistakes, and she's able to counter on them. The difference is, Holly is a very physically strong fighter, and big for a weight class. Chukasian doesn't really have that same sort of natural abilities. And because of that, you get the situation with a lot of the fights where they can't become point matches, and they can't be the nicest things to watch. But if you look at her record, she's the number two contender in the world, arguably going to be number one because, she, because Andrade may very well drop back down straw weight. And the people who she's lost to are either the champion, Shevchenko, or other people who fought for the belt. Liz Carmouche, Jessica Rye, and, as mentioned before, Jessica Andrade. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that Andrade fight, I mean, you know, she did get stopped. But, I mean, she was catching Andrade. I know Andrade is not the hardest person to catch with strikes. But, yeah, I tend to agree. I, I've seen her game really progress over time. She's getting more comfortable. For me, she never really looked comfortable in her first couple of fights. She was really technically skilled, but it was almost like she was pulling some of her punches. You know, she wasn't necessarily throwing. She she wouldn't really sit down on much, and she played it pretty safe. I think she's getting a little bit more comfortable in there. I think after, you know, suffering that loss to uh, Andrade, I think, you know, she's seen what it feels like to be knocked out, you know, and have that. And I think that, you know, the uh, Cynthia Calvillo win really showed a progression in her game. And I think that, you know, this is going to continue with this Viviani Araja fight. The fight that impressed me with Chukasian recently was the one against Antonina. But you've got to remember that Antonita entered that fight as the favourite. And yet Chukasian showed this very wrestling-heavy game, which a lot of people weren't, weren't expecting, and dominated that. Now, you could say, yes, Antonina 
has always had issues when it comes to fighting off her back, and Chukasian adapted her game to suit that. But it does show that the wrestling's there if she needs it, and she may very well need to if Viviani does turn this into a grappling match like she's capable of. I do have concerns when it comes to Viviani, and you mentioned it before, her conditioning. A lot of people were very high on her train after what she did to Toledo Bernardo, and she fought a wily veteran in Alexis Davis, and even though she got the win, she looked gassed by that third round. And so you've got to think this concern that Chukasian, somebody who uses a lot of lateral movement, who relies on people to tire themselves out, she could have a field there if Viviani hasn't addressed that side of her game. I agree. Also, one more thing that's big anytime a fight takes place in Texas is the Texas Athletic Com- Commission is notably inept. They're terrible. Every, <laughs> every fight that goes to a decision could be a flip of a coin. I think Arajo could employ a lot of forward pressure in this fight. And if the, there's a coin flip round, if Arajo is the one moving forward and has forward pressure, Arajo could take that round. That goes for any of these fights on this card. I mean, mm-hmm. it's... The judges for the Texas Athletic Commission are awful. Every fight that I've ever attended in Texas, I mean, most of the decisions, there's at least one dissenting judge in every fight. So that's something to keep in mind for these fights. Good point you made about the pressure as well, because it wasn't Texas, but that was exactly how Jessica Rye beat you Cajun at 231. Because Jess was just charging in, bull rushing. And that's where the judges thought she's done more to earn this fight. Actually, ironic right. note here, for all the grief that Jessica Rye gets, she holds wins over both of these two fighters. She does. <laughs> That's yeah. very interesting comparison. So yeah, so I'm, I'm going to stick with my prediction. I'm going, I think, uh, 28-27 Shuke again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go 30-27. I think that Viviani does have a lot of good qualities. Um, if she is able to turn this into a grappling match, I think she has a substantial advantage over Chukasian. But it's not so much that Chukasian has great takedown defense. It's just people can't get into a position to take her down because of the way she fights. Um, I think we're going to see her staying on the outside. Um, I think she's going to avoid the big power punches of Viviani. We're going to get a typical Caitlin Chukasian fight. Whether that's I... a good thing or a bad thing, that's completely up to you. Yeah, so. We're going to talk about a fight as well. Now, this was a late addition to the card because this originally was going to be one of the fights on the prelims. Obviously, uh, Nate Diaz versus Leon Edwards fell through. That fight's taking place at 263 now. And this fight gets bumped into its place. But in my opinion, it's one of the more intriguing fights on the card. It's a middleweight encounter. Jack Manson taking on Edmund Shabazian. What makes this fight so interesting to me? It's the sort of same thing that we sort of brought up when we talked about uh, Burgos versus Barboza. Both of these guys have strengths to play into the weaknesses of their opponents. With Jack Manson, you've got a hell of a good, strong grappler who's able to utilize his top position, dangerous ground and pound. And with Shabazian, you've got a guy who is more than capable of exploiting the defensive weaknesses in striking that Jack Manson showed when he fought Marvin Vittori. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that these are two guys who come out in the first round hot. I think Shabazian just lets him fly in the first round. You know, he really wants to get 
fighters out in the first round. I think Hermanson as well. Hermanson has a ton of first round finishes where he just blitzes people. I think it's an interesting fight because, I mean, Hermanson is very, very hittable and is often knocked down in most of his fights, even his wins. Um, a lot of people are really, really down on Shabazian after that Brunson loss, but I'm not quite sure that I can say that I'm the same. I, I think that, you know, Brunson's a very physically formidable fighter. He's one of the only fighters to really ever hang in there and win wrestling exchanges with Yoel Romero. Obviously, he lost the fight, but yeah, I think that, uh, I think that Shabazian has a really good chance here of coming out and stunning Hermanson early. I'm in a very similar boat. Um, because the thing with Edmund Shabazzian, if we look at his record here, 11-1, yes, he had the loss against Derek Brunson. He has had 10 wins all in the first round. The one that he won by decision was against Darren Stewart, which was his UFC debut. So he is more than capable of finishing this fight in the first round. Primarily, he does it through his striking. I think his boxing fundamentals are very, very good. Much better than people give him credit for. Um, the big issue when it comes to Shabazzian... And we saw this when he fought against Darren Stewart. We saw this when he fought against Derek Brunson. You take him into deep waters, his conditioning goes to pot. Now, that's something that can easily be addressed. He's 22 years old. The question becomes, has he got the team around him that's capable of fixing that issue? Right. He doesn't have the best team. He has Coach Edmund. So, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, if he's really... They were really able to take much away from that fight. And if they did take away the stuff that needed to be taken away, you know, I mean, it's a it's a it's the first loss. He's a really, really young guy. So you never know, you know, how he might take that loss. Um, although I did the Shabazian that fought Brunson, if he had learned no lessons from that fight and, you know, he was looking that same Shabazian was looking across the cage at Hermanson instead of Brunson. I think that he would have had a good shot at Hermanson then as well. Um, I think. It looked like he kept his power pretty well. Brunson just did a pretty good job of evading in the second round. And, I mean, I think Hermanson's going to be in danger any time that this fight is not on the ground. I think he he's very lazy with his striking. Mm -hmm. He looked a lot better against um, Vittori, but, I mean, he definitely did get chewed up on the feet against Vittori. So I think this will be a pretty controversial pick if I do go with Shabazian. I think a lot of people are writing him off and thinking that, you know, Hermanson's just going to be able to impose his will with his pressure grappling game and, you know, work his way to a late submission. But I don't know. I mean, you know, the the uh, there's some losses on Hermanson's record. And I mean, there's just too many times of him getting himself in a bad position and eating, you know, eating a shot that I just like you said, Shabazian is just a phenomenal boxer, has really, really good fast hands, no wind up on a lot of his shots. Granted, he does throw some haymakers, but yeah, I'm leaning towards Shabazian. I'm... I hate to disagree, but I'm leaning towards Manson. I just think there's just so many concerns when it comes to Shabazian in terms of, obviously, his mental fortitude. How much did that loss affect him? Has he got the team to fix some of those flaws in his game? I've got this feeling that Manson is going to get hurt. And I can possibly see the same thing where he does get rocked in that first round, especially since he does have a habit of standing and trading with his opponents, like we saw against Marvin Vittori. I just, I've got this feeling that Shabazian is going to tire himself out trying to finish the fight in the first round. And we could see Hermanson come back and finish it either late in the second or early in the third. Yeah. I mean, those are the two most, I think, I think the two most likely outcomes are early Shabazian knockout or a late 
Hermanson submission. It's tough to say, though, because, I mean, we don't really know much about Shabazian on the ground. I mean, Brunson's not necessarily, you know, the greatest submission grappler. I mean, he was more, you know, ground and pound. And, I mean, the Darren Stewart, Stewart fight, Darren Stewart's not that great of a wrestler. But, I mean, Shabazian wasn't, you know, he went to decision. So, I know Shabazian does have some submissions on his record. But, yeah, this is an interesting fight. I think this is going to tell us a lot about Shabazian. And I will say the Darren Stewart fight was a it was a bit of an anomaly. I don't know why they chose to approach the fight in this way, because Shibazian was normally known as a knockout artist, but he was very wrestling heavy when he fought Darren Stewart. Do you think that was them trying to prove a point to say, hey, I'm more than just a striker? I think possibly Darren Stewart, I think, is a tough striker. I think he, he gives some guys some weird looks. I mean, you know, he fought Kevin Holland, and I mean, that was a pretty contentious decision, you know, Kevin Holland taking that win over him. I think, I don't exactly remember the specifics of that fight, but I mean, Shabazian might have just saw something on the feet that he didn't like and decided to take the path of least resistance. I mean, you know, Bartosz Fabinski, I know a lot of guys have some wins over Stewart taking him down. So, yeah. Shabazian's just like we said, he's real tough to put a dot on right now of like where he's at. So I, I, I'm very excited about this fight. Honestly, the worst outcome for me would be an early knockout because it still wouldn't tell me much about Edmund Shabazian. You know, the heavy hands guys always talk about, you know, the early knockout, you know, just being so unsatisfying sometimes. I'll be very excited to see a knockout live. But, you know, then when I get back home, I'm going to be like, well, we still don't know much about him. So. Honestly, I kind of do hope it goes three rounds and Hermanson gets a sub submission, but we'll see. I'm leaning towards Shabazian still, but. And we have to talk about the elephant in the room before we move on to our next subject, which is when you talk about Edmund Shabazian, you have to bring up Edmund Tarverdian. Is, yes, I mean... is this going to be a detriment to him? I don't know. It's It's really subjective and it's hard to quantify. You know, I mean... There's a lot of camps that have bad there's there's camps with bad coaches, there's camps with bad guys. I mean, you never really know if, you know, Edmund's a good fighter. I mean, we know that he's a good fighter. We don't know how much he relies on a game plan. I mean, you spoke, you know, that might have been a, a, a game plan that they employed in that uh, Darren Stewart fight. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, I think Shabazian has a ton of athletic ability. He's really, really explosive. So I don't know if he's going to need to rely on his coach as much, but Hopefully, you know, Shabazian, they come with a different game plan. He's worked on his conditioning, you know, and they have mixed stuff up since that Brunson fight. If they haven't, then I definitely think that will be to his detriment. And to be honest, as somebody who who sort of like looks at the the wider picture when it comes to MMA, maybe a bit more than what other fans do, Shabazian winning this fight would be, it would be good for the middleweight division, like 22 years old, explosive fighting style, and... Middleweight is struggling at the moment to try and find contenders for Adesanya. If if Shabazian is able to iron out some of these flaws in his game, go on a winning streak, he could be up there. He could. And I think, you know, all things considered, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a great win for him. And I think, you know, a fight against Kelvin, I mean, there's a lot of different guys in the division that I think that he could continue not getting some notches in his belt, you know, before he faced Adesanya. Like you said, he's a good boxer. I mean, yeah, I think that this this would be a good thing for the division. I don't like Hermanson's chances against Adesanya, quite honestly. I tell you one fight that we are looking forward to. We're going on to the core main event now. I mean, going to the first of two lightweight fights on the main card. This one, in my opinion, arguably a bit more intriguing, dare I say, it, than the main event. It's Tony Ferguson taking on Benil Dariush. 
And a bit of uncharted waters when it comes to Tony Ferguson. He's on the first two-fight skid of his career. Lost to Charles Oliveira at UFC 256. And it wasn't really... It wasn't a great performance from Tony Ferguson. And a lot of people feared after what happened against Justin Gagey. Was that his Henan Burrell moment? Was that the fight where he just took so much damage? He was never the same fighter again. And based on what we saw against Charles Oliveira... I think those people who felt that way maybe felt more strongly after what we saw against Oliveira. Was that a good Oliveira performance or was that Tony Ferguson showing the damage and the age of his career? It's tough to say. I mean, man, I've gone back and watched that fight several times. I mean, when the fight starts, Tony is chewing Oliveira up on the feet. And I think that that fight provides pretty good analysis for the main event as well. Um, Tony did look... He looked a little slower than he did at the start of the Gaethje fight. And I'm not real sure. I mean, he wasn't real. His guard wasn't really active in the first round. And I mean, I think most people would be lying if they didn't say that the arm bar that, you know, definitely compromised him in the in the later rounds. I mean, I definitely think that that made it much more difficult for him to get anything going off of his back later on. Um, yeah, I mean, the top game of Daryush, I think, is just as good or you know not maybe not as good but could pose similar problems to tony ferguson in this fight and Dariush can crack so i think that you know tony's two weaknesses and two, two downfalls in his last fight i think are present in this Dariush fight and i think Dariush is a very hittable guy though so that's what makes this interesting is this a three round or is, a is it a five round fight did they retain this as a three round fight even it's a three round fight round? Okay, man, I was hoping they were going to make it a five-round since uh, Diaz, you know, was a five-round as well. Well, I think they're doing that. I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theory. I think they're doing that because I think they know Nate has a better chance of winning that, winning the Leon fight if it is five rounds because we know how good Nate's conditioning is. And I think the sort of, yeah. that was maybe one of the guarantees that Nate had to say, yes, I will come back, but only if it's five rounds. Yeah, it's a great point, man. I was really hoping we were going to start normalizing non-title fight co-main event five-rounders. That would have been great. But yeah, I think, well, going into that, I think that that gives maybe Daru... Who do you think that favors then, it, retaining three, remaining three? I'm thinking that Dar, that gives Daryush a little bit better, better of a shot. I think so as well. I think that... I thought Benil's conditioning on the whole normally holds up quite well, but he did seem to tire a bit when he fought Diego Pereira. And Tony just has a fantastic gas tank. He does start fights slowly, but once he gets into a rhythm, he's at times he could be unstoppable. The one that always sticks in my mind in recent times was when he fought Cowboy. Because you could yeah. argue that Cowboy won the first round. But Tony just did not stop pushing him. And by the end of that second round, Cowboy's face was just absolutely in bits and pieces. Um just mentioning Benil though, because I want to bring this up because I'm a big I'm a big Benny fan, have been for a while. When we saw him losing 40 seconds to Alex Hernandez, a lot of people wrote this guy off and thought he's 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 damaged goods. He'll never get back to being sort of like a top five, top six guy. But then he goes on this run of six wins in a row. I mean, he was fighting on the prelims of Asian Fight Night, six fights in a row, the barnstormer against Drakkar Closer. And now he's back in the top 10. And there's a lot of bookmakers who have him as the favorite against Tony Ferguson, which you never would have thought back in 2018. No, yeah. I mean, what a, what a, what a story of a career. I mean, 
what an awful loss, you know, at the hands of Alexander Hernandez. I mean, just getting absolutely starched. Not really many people expecting that. And, you know, as you said, grinding on the Asian fight night cards, coming back. I mean, he's had so many good wins. I mean, the spinning back elbow knockout, the Dracar close knockout was absolutely amazing. And then coming back and putting closing the book on Carlos Diego Ferreira. I'd say it was a pretty emphatic win. I know it was a split decision, but, I mean, he really nullified. As the fight went on, he really started to put Carlos Diego Ferreira out of the fight. Um, I think the odds makers are seeing kind of similar stuff that I'm seeing. Um, I think this is an interesting fight because Tony needs to change his fighting style a little bit. I'm not sure if he has the chin to be able to withstand the damage that he does early on in these fights. And I think Dariush has a ton of power. I think that, you know... Tony needs to fight a little bit differently. And I'm not really sure if where Tony's head's at right now. I mean, I know he's made a change of camps. I know he's moved to a uh, wild card boxing. And so what do you think about that? What do you, where do you think Tony's head's at right now? It's, it's very hard to say. I think, I think it hurt Tony not getting the Khabib fight. It's something which he, he brings up a lot when you listen to him on social media. I think it's, he talks about like that Khabib ran away from him, um, so I, I I think maybe deep down it's sort of like him maybe putting on the front that maybe yeah. it, so it's very hard to say. Um, I think this is a really tricky fight for Tony Ferguson, in my opinion. Yes, yes, Benil is hittable, but the big thing that has led to Benil's turnaround in his career, in my opinion, is he's doing a lot more to protect his chin. I think I read somewhere when he went on that. Uh, that sort of bad losing streak where he was like drawing fights against people like Evan Dunham. He was only shooting in for one takedown in four fights. Now he's averaging four and a half during this winning streak. So he's a lot more grappling heavy than he once was. That's benefiting his chin because he's not getting exposed as much. And I think if Benil is able to take Tony down, based on what I saw against the Charles Oliveira fight, I think he's more than capable of grinding out a decision. I know a lot of people want this to be a barn burner, and as somebody who loves Tony Ferguson's fights, I would like to see one. I want to be entertained, and I'm sure you will as well, being in attendance. I think Benil has a very good chance of winning this fight if he's able to turn it into a wrestling match. I do as well. I think it's going to be interesting regardless. You know, I'm not, I brought up Tony's mental game. You know, I'm typically not a guy who, like, reads into a lot of that, and I typically try to stick to the more objective, like, actual fight metrics. But Tony just looked off in that Oliveira fight. I mean, his guard was just not as active as what it, you know, previously was. I mean, he just wasn't as, act more, as active off his back. I mean, his facial mannerism, mannerisms, everything just seemed a little bit off about him. So I'm hoping he brings, you know, a little bit more energy. Like you said, I do think he felt a little bit, you know, scorned not getting the uh, Khabib fight. But, yeah, I think... I think he's still going to be able to create some interesting scrambles off the bottom. But, I mean, Darius does have such a good top game. I mean, Carlos Diego Ferreira is no slouch in the grappling department. We watched him fight Gregor Galipsy last night. And, I mean, at the very beginning, he was putting Gregor Galipsy, a talented, talented wrestler who has a wrestling win over Michael Chandler in the NCAA tournament in a ton of compromising positions. So I think for Daryush, he's going to need to retain his gas tank over three rounds. I think he's really going to need to make the most of when he's on the feet. I think he's going to need to stay away from a lot of Tony's shots. I mean, Tony chewed up Oliveira at the beginning of their fight. If Oliveira didn't get it to the ground, I think Oliveira would have been getting, you know, 
I don't think he would have won the first round. I think he was getting beat up on the feet. That body lock takedown that he got really did change the momentum of the fight. I think that Dariush has to make sure that the momentum stays on his side. Tony's so good at losing a first round and coming out, you know, and just pouring it on in the second round. I'm really interested to see if Dariush can withstand that. I certainly am as well. If you had to put your money where your mouth is, who are you leaning towards with this one? Uh, just checking again before we do. Uh, bookmakers at the moment have got Benil minus 150, Tony plus 125. Man, I mean, I think I'm leaning a little bit more towards Dariush. I think that Tony... I think that Tony's going to stay in exchanges a little bit too long, and I think he is going to get – I don't know if he'll get knocked out because his chin is – you know, we've seen his chin testing. I mean, the five-round beating against Gaethje, no one that's human can take that. But I do think that Darius is going to at least hurt him pretty significantly, if not knock him out. And I do think that Darius is a good enough grappler that he won't be submitted in any of the scrambles. Um, man, I'm going to lean towards Darius. What about you? I'm going the same way. I'm going to say Benil by unanimous decision. I just, as I mentioned this before, and I know there was a lot of Tony Ferguson fans who gave me grief when I brought this up before the Oliveira fight. I think sometimes a fighter can have a, a war which just takes so much out of them they're never the same fighter. That's sort of hen and burrow moment. And as much as I do love Tony Ferguson, as much as I love the wars that he's had over the years against RDA, people like that, the Justin Gagey fight was his Dillashaw versus Burrell. And I don't think we're going to get the same Tony Ferguson again. I mean, the guy's 37 years old. Yeah. You know, and I think regardless of, you know, having that moment, I think Dariush at any point of his career is a tough matchup for him. You know, you have a guy who is a solid top game grappler who, you know, has a ton of power and is not, is not scared of marching forward through fire. I mean, Dariush is... Daryush can get in some firefights. And, I mean, he has been knocked out, but I don't know. I think he's seeing strikes better. His striking game has got a little bit more refined. He's sitting down on stuff a little bit more. So, yeah, I'm leaning Daryush as well. But this is this is the fight I'm most excited for on the card, and I really think that this is going to deliver a knock on wood. <laughs> I can tell you what as well. The fact that Tony Ferguson on a two-fight skid, He's not been given an easy layup matchup. He's got Benil Dariush. I mean, the number nine lightweight in the world is Benil Dariush. That is how strong the lightweight division is. I mean, Makayev, Fazeev, I mean, Gregor Gillespie. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, even unranked guys. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a shark tank. I mean, it's the most unforgiving division, I think. You're going to see a lot of guys, when they fall out of the top of the division, they're just going to keep getting unforgiving matchups. I mean, I think the lightweight division now is one of the best divisions in the history of the UFC at any time. So I'm super excited that we're getting an almost quasi-lightweight tournament at the top of this card. So, And on that cheery note, it is time for us to talk about the main event of the evening, and it is for the lightweight title. Khabib Nurmagomedov was the longtime champion UFC 254, he lay his gloves in the center of the octagon and said, that's it, I'm done. So the title's been vacated and it will be contested this weekend. It's Charles Oliveira taking on Michael Chandler. And I think the big fascinating point about this fight is the way that both men have managed to reach this title fight. Because Charles Oliveira entered the UFC as a very young fighter. It's taken him 11 years and a field spell as featherweight to reach this opportunity. 11 years for Charles Oliveira to reach the title fight. Michael Chandler, two minutes. 
Yeah, that's a great way to sum it up. I mean, Michael Chandler has had an illustrious career outside the UFC. You know, he's he's been there forever. I mean, he's at a strong camp. You know, he's with uh, Henry Hooft. And, I mean, he's in there grinding with, you know, the likes of Usman. And, well, not Usman anymore, but, uh, you know, Gilbert Burns, Rockhold, a lot of those guys who sharpen iron against iron against each other in there. You know, Chandler's always been on my radar since the Eddie Alvarez fight. And, um, yeah, the Chandler's first fight in the UFC was just such a weird one. I think that a lot of fans who had never seen Chandler in before in Bellator might have, like, you know, a little bit too high of hopes for him. I don't really even know where Chandler stands right now. You know, he's he's coming off of a couple knockout wins in Bellator. He suffered the loss of uh, Patricia Frieri. Um, so, yeah, Oliveira is one of my top favorite fighters, I think, in the UFC. I mean, I was originally from Houston. I know he is fights out of Houston. Um, just a guy who's really been everywhere. Like you said, a failed Senate featherweight came back. The uh, Kevin Lee fight was phenomenal. Tony Ferguson fights phenomenal. I mean, he's just really been putting it on. His striking has gotten better. I think he's gotten much better wrestling and his grappling has always been there. So super, super interesting fight. What is your take on this fight? Really fascinated by this fight. Not not so much in terms of the fight itself, which I do think is going to be compelling, and we'll get into that in a lot more detail. I almost sort of, in a strange way, sort of feel sorry for both of these fighters because regardless of who wins it, and I say this for a lot of fighters who compete for a vacated belt, there's almost this element of paper champion about them because we saw how dominant Khabib was, just turning over guys like Conor, Gagey, Dustin Poirier. And... Because these guys became champion without beating Khabib, there's always going to be this sort of asterisk next to them. But I think it's doubly worse for both of these opponents because not only have you got Khabib sort of hanging over you, like a cloud hanging over you, you've also got Dustin Poirier. And a lot of people believe Dustin Poirier is the pound-for-pound pound lightweight in the world right now. Yeah. 100%. It's such a weird matchup. And, you know, I think a lot of people have alluded to they wanted two guys who didn't have losses to Khabib. They wanted to get a new guy who's fresh. I mean, you have Gaethje, you have Poirier, you have McGregor, you know, the three other sharks circle in this division. They've all been, you know, beaten and basically dominated by Khabib. So you, you want to build up a guy who's, you know, doesn't have that Khabib loss on his record. And I agree. I mean, you do get kind of the paper champion feel and yeah, it's, it's going to be weird to where it goes from here because, I mean, you know, Daryush beats Tony Ferguson, arguably, you know, the number one contender for years and years and years. I really don't see Daryush getting a title shot after that. I mean, I would have to imagine, you know, it's going to be Gaethje Poirier or McGregor in the mix after that, don't you? I think so. I think whoever wins between Connor and Dustin is going to get the first shot at the winner of this fight. I agree. I mean, I think that's like the most lo UFC logic that makes the most sense. Yeah. You know, I think... Yeah, so it'll be interesting. As far as the matchup goes, um, man, I don't know. You know, I know some of the fans are favoring Oliveira, um, and I think Oliveira is the odds-on Vegas favorite right now. But I don't know. I just – I don't – I feel like he's a little bit too hittable, and he's a little bit too willing to stand and trade for me to trust him against Chandler. And I think as well, I, I agree with you in that regard. And Oliveira also had a lot of issues when it came to pressure. And that was something that really bothered him early on in his career, and especially when he fought a featherweight. He has started to iron those flaws out to an extent. I also, I'm also not 100% sure how good Charles Oliveira actually is, because yes, he does have this A5 winning streak, 
But the only two notable wins on that record are Kevin Lee, who is notorious in how inconsistent he is, and a Tony Ferguson, who some people believe maybe is past his best. So we don't 100% know how good Charles Oliveira actually is. In the same way, we don't yeah. know how good Michael Chandler actually is because he's only had one fight in the UFC, and that was yeah. a quick one-punch knockout against Dan Hooker. I agree. It's very tough. I mean, you know, Michael Chandler knocking out guys like Sydney Outlaw and stuff over in Bellator is not really a good indication of, you know, UFC talent. I don't know where I would place you at Sydney Outlaw in the or, you know, Brent Primus in the UFC lightweight division. I don't think they would be that high. But um, I agree. I think Oliveira does really well when he's able to pressure. You know, he had the uh, he had some fights where he was able to pressure. He was also a guy known to wilt. Like you said, he did not like being pressured. Um, you know, he had a ton of fights where the moment that someone was able to turn the tide on him, he fell out. The Kevin Lee fight was interesting because that was really the first fight where the momentum was in Kevin Lee's favor. And then he shifted and took over. Kevin Lee got a little bit lazy and got guillotined. But yeah, I favor I tend to favor Chandler in this fight. I think that Chandler is going to be able to pressure him. And if the same Oliveira comes out who came out against Tony Ferguson, he was just far too hittable, far too willing to stand. I mean, his head was sitting up bolt straight, almost Donald Cerrone-esque, you know, just waiting to be hit with jabs. Um, Chandler looked super, I mean, the Chandler fight against Dan Hooker is so hard to take anything away from. I mean, it was a bizarre fight, you know, but I mean, he looked super mobile. I mean, it was a pretty, you know, good setup to his overhand. Um, you know, I think if he stays mobile, he works a pressure game. Um, he doesn't, you know, head in, uh, single leg him and go for and get guillotined. I think he has a pretty good chance of knocking Charles Oliveira out. In a very similar board. I think Chandler for me is sort of your quintessential wrestle boxer. I've heard a lot of people yeah. compare him to sort of like a lightweight Chad Mendes. He sort of uses the threat of the takedown to set up that big right hand. And we have seen him in Bellator fight guys who are very similar to Charles Oliveira. The, the one that sticks in my mind was Gotti Yamauchi. And mm -hmm. when it did go into a grappling match and uh, Yamauchi was trying to throw up his legs, Chandler was neutralizing that. So if it does go to the ground, I can see him trying to neutralize some of Oliveira's submission threats. Especially when I think, I think Oliveira's a better submission threat when he's on top rather than off his back. So he's not really like a Tony Ferguson type. I'm also a bit concerned with Chandler in terms of his, the diversity of his striking abilities. He has a good job, he has a good job and a great right hand, but that's really it. I agree. I do think he's a little bit limited as far as his capabilities go. He also, I mean, he's very prone to being leg kicked. And, you know, I mean, the Brett Primus fight, but I think, you know, Benson leg kicked him pretty well. I mean, he did leg kick Benson as well, but I think Oliveira, what, you know, it's really tough, like you said, to quantify how just how good Oliveira is. But Oliveira is very, very, if you say one about him, he has a very varied offense. I mean, he has wins with spinning back elbows. I mean, he's been working in flying knees, leg kicks. I mean, he has some some crafty ways to level change. Um, I just don't see him. A lot of that stuff is really dependent on him being the pressure fighter. And I just don't know if he's going to be able to pressure Chandler. And I think as well, a good point as well, you mentioned about Charles Oliveira and his diversity. If he has one sniff of your neck or one sniff of your arm, he is going to take it. He is very, yes. he is a good clutch su submission guy. Very similar to Brian Ortega. Yeah, 100%. He's, you know, he's got his 
I mean, the arm bar against Tony Ferguson was insane. I mean, you know, guillotine against Kevin Lee. I mean, he had so many submissions. He's also a glass cannon in a way. I mean, he's been submitted. He's had some submitted submission losses. I mean, you know, submitted by Anthony Pettis, among some others. So I think it's it's such a tough fight to call. I don't know why. I've just been really at a loss in coming up with a blank with this fight. It's really tough to see. I mean, there are some foils that they faced in their past that kind of give us a little bit. But like you said, it's really tough to know where Oliveira is at this point, And it's really tough to know where Chandler is at this point. The really, the only thing that, you know, I'm basing my judgment off of on picking Chandler is that Oliveira is just a little bit too hittable. And he's been known to fold once he, you know, is beat up a little bit. It's very interesting at the moment with Paul on the YouTube page, uh, at the moment, they've got Charles Oliveira, 51% to win this fight. Michael Chandler, 49 So they've got this one too close to call as well. In my opinion, mm. and this, this sounds strange, in my opinion, we're not going to know who's going to win this fight until Tony Ferguson versus Dayush. Because if we see the old Tony Ferguson that blows through Benil, it's going to make Charles Oliveira's win against him look so much better. But if Tony struggles or even loses... The questions about how good Oliveira is, it's going to come to the fore. At the moment, I think it's very touch and go. I'm going to say Chandler. I think Chandler, I'm going to say second round knockout, Chandler gets this done. I'm going to go Chandler's second round knockout as well. I agree. I think that that, you know, being able to base the wins, you know, although they're different stylistic matchups, you know, it's not like a one-to-one comparison. I agree. It's really tough to know where Tony is. That Oliveira win, you know, it's just a tough one to read against Ferguson. You know, like I said, I mean, the striking was interesting, but I mean, just shutting him out on the ground, no one's really ever done that to Tony before. So we don't really have any basis to know if that's going to, you know, Oliveira still has that in his repertoire. His wrestling looked great. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think Oliveira's, I'm really excited to see how Chandler and Oliveira match up in the wrestling. I mean, you know, Oliveira has a really varied takedowns in the Ferguson fight. Um, and I'm, Pretty excited to see. I think Chandler could get in trouble if he, you know, gets in some scrambles with Oliveira. I think that Oliveira is definitely one of the most dangerous grapplers Chandler's ever fought. Bellator's always had this bit of a stigma of being seen as sort of like the B-League when it comes to mixed martial arts compared to the UFC. Everyone says, oh, Bellator, they're either guys who use it as a stepping stone to the UFC or they're past it to the UFC no longer have any value in. Would a Michael Chandler win change people's perception of Bellator? I don't know. MMA fans are so fickle and so recent that I think it would be tough. I mean, I think at any given time, any division in any organization could be better than another. I mean, arguably the UF, the Bellator heavyweight roster right now is pretty solid. But to answer your question, I think possibly. I mean, I think that, you know, they could, they could, other fans that are a little bit newer to the sport could recognize that there are guys in other divisions that if given the chance could come to the UFC and have success. Um, I think what has marred Bellator in the past has just been, you know, Scott Coker's and I mean, Bajorn Rebney before him putting on fight cards where all eight of the favorites win, you know, Jack Slack famously picks all bets on Fritz, all the favorites win. They all crush cans, you know, Michael Venom page fights someone from out of the stands, you know, and it's, I think that's what's hurt Bellator in the past. But, I mean, I think Chandler has kept a pretty strong schedule. I don't think that he's fought bums in his career. I think that Bellator has kept him pretty busy. It's certainly going to be really fascinating to watch, though. And um, 
I have to say it's a very good fitting end to the 262 main card. Obviously, we're going to have a crowd in attendance. You're going to be one of those. And building up this massive cake of exciting matchups. And this is the cherry on top of it, potentially. I agree. I think it'll be a great ending to it. I think it's a perfect main event. And like you said, it'll be interesting seeing how this like seeing the reactions of the other fighters in the lightweight division. And then I'm interested to see what Dana says. I'm interested if Benil Daryush has a phenomenal performance where he absolutely destroys Tony Ferguson. If Dana indicates in any way that, excuse me, Daryush could, you know, move up a little bit. And then, yeah, I think that there's good matchups across the card. I'm really excited to see how Hermanson Shabazian goes. Burgos Barboza has every potential to be a fire fight and then on the bottom and on the prelims i think there's some interesting matchups you know in a couple different divisions so i'm super excited to go to this card and i really appreciate you having me on to chat about it you're very welcome luke uh, for anybody who wants to know anything else about you are there any places to follow you um i just recently got a twitter so i forgot <laughs> my so when you you'll at me in the episode description, I'm a little elusive right now as far as social media goes. I deleted some of my accounts. I'm about to be going. Uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna get back on social media a little bit more and start podcasting. So you're my kind of my new debut. So I will stay tuned. Is all I can say. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me, Luke. Here, um, if there is anybody here who wants to support the channel or follow us on It's Not Cage Fighting, then. It is patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. And you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash I N cage fighting. Any support, any comments, any liking this video, sharing it with your friends does us the world of good. So a big thank you to anybody who has sat with us for the past hour. A big thank you as well for Luke for joining us on short notice. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, this has been the INC. Thank you for watching uh, and please enjoy UFC 262 and we'll be back next month when we'll talk about UFC 263, a double bill of rematches in both flyweight and middleweight divisions. Bye bye for now.